I'm Eva Minkoff, your host and fibromyalgia warrior. On this show, I have candid conversations about chronic illness with both patients and practitioners. In other words, people like you and me. I'm also the founder of Wellacopia.com, the matching site for healthcare relationships. We connect chronic illness wellness seekers like you with the integrative providers best suited to be your partners in care. Today's episode is a woman who is the epitome of be kind, be gentle, be badass. Psychotherapist, friend, and colleague, Jody Taub. Jody has a private practice as a therapist in New York City. She is both a specialist in chronic illness as well as a chronic illness patient herself. She was my first guest as the new Invisible Not Broken host last year, and her episode was titled The Emotional Side of Chronic Illness back in January 2019. Today, Jody's back to talk about a similar topic, but more specifically about coping during COVID-19 and her professional and personal journey as an extremely high-risk patient with primary immunodeficiency. This is the first episode in a series Monica and myself aim to produce related to the pandemic that we're all experiencing right now in April 2020 and beyond, since this is likely to continue for a few months and almost certainly to impact our lives going forward in ways we don't even know yet. I want to start by saying this. We are all going through something both tragic and beautiful. The world is experiencing pain, loss, turmoil, fear, and at the same time, growth, love, community, innovation, and sometimes even humor. It's a time in history none of us will forget, but it's a time that we can choose to remember in a certain way. Part of that will be based on how we individually respond to what's going on. We don't have a lot of say in what happens to us these days, but we do have a say in how we respond to it. Just like any negative experience, it's not necessarily easy to do that, to see the positives or the possibilities, but they are there. And in this episode, Jody and I talk about this extensively, including how we are both challenged to do this, particularly for Jody. In this episode, we start by diving into the depths of Jody's experience during this critical time in her life. It's critical in that her day-to-day life was already questionable. Living with PI, where she is essentially missing part of her immune system, means that social distancing and advanced hygiene, as we're experiencing now, have always been a part of her life. With PI, Jody is constantly being infused with others' antibodies since She is antibiotic resistant and can't produce them on her own. COVID-19 is essentially Jody's worst nightmare. Living with primary immunodeficiency also means that Jody will be isolated for several months. She will be forced to mourn her life before COVID-19, as many of us will have to. And despite all of this, Jody's kindness, gentle nature, and badassery is abundant in her ability to support others during their crises, especially now, 
all while dealing with her own mind-boggling daily struggles. Today, we talk about different ways of coping with the current pandemic, both internally and externally, including some of our own personal coping strategies. And what I love about this discussion is that we don't necessarily specify best coping strategies for people with chronic illnesses in particular, because whether or we have them or not, every person on the planet has a different experience and therefore different ways of dealing with hardship. Our needs are individualized regardless of diagnosis. So please take or leave what you wish. This isn't as much of a how-to anyway as it is a discussion. That being said, stay tuned at the end for my personal list of coping strategies in case you're looking for some more concrete examples to take away. Before we get started, a couple things to note. Before we get started, a couple things to note. One, this is a trigger warning. We do talk about PTSD, loss, war, and we do get emotional at times. Just don't want there to be any surprise going into this. Also, I have personally already experienced a lot of fear and loss. Last week, I lost two close family members to COVID-19, and several of my other family members are sick with it. My friends and uh, my husband are also medical professionals, some of whom are in the front lines. This pandemic is telling us a lot about who we are as individuals, communities, countries, and so on. And that's really what I'm looking to focus on. Number two, as always, a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Okay, let's get started with this very meaningful, very deep, very insightful, very special episode with Jody Taub. So we're here, it's April, 2020, the era of COVID-19. It's, uh, it's been quite a time so far. It has been. Yeah, well, I, we all have our own stories of what we've been experiencing internally as well as externally. And I'd like to hear where you're at with all of that first. Okay. So my name is Jody Taub. I'm a therapist. I specialize in treating patients with chronic health care conditions. And I also have primary immunodeficiencies. So that makes me an immunocompromised host, which also means that I'm at the highest risk for what's happening right now. Um, I have a bit of a special interest in all of this, and I sort of started my prep early because now there's language that people actually understand for what I deal with, um, especially because of the recent um, studies regarding plasma, but I am missing IgG and IgA, which are your fighters that fight off and recognize viruses and infection. And so in order for me to stay alive every two weeks, I get other people's plasma. So the same process that they're using now with um, patients who've recovered for COVID with the hope that they'll create antibodies. My body doesn't create antibodies for a variety, but for most common illnesses such as pneumonia, and whooping cough and measles and all that. So I have to get other people's antibodies. So COVID for me is quite dangerous because I live my life 
worried about every disease being COVID. So I am undercover now. I am now, I think I'm six weeks into isolation. So I have been living, um, started the curve a little bit earlier because I knew what was happening. This is my world. Um, in the beginning, I think, you know, people who knew me and knew the danger to this knew what was happening, but I was off the subways with my N95 mask because I have one and I have to wear it usually and often. <laughs> and a lot of the techniques and skills that people are using with masks and not touching doors and not touching germs and all of this, I live my life this way. But I was in uh, Jersey City in a large condo building. I work in Manhattan and I'm in and out of there every day. And um, I temporarily had to leave in order to save my life because if I remained, I wouldn't be able to maintain the healthcare that I needed. There was a surgical procedure I was supposed to have the day I left. Um, I left in a very safe way, in a way, and I wanna be clear about this because now there's some judgment calls for New Yorkers who made the decision to leave. I left socially isolating myself several weeks prior. I had not gone anywhere. This was before people were even doing this. And um, we left in a car and went to a contained environment in Ohio at my friend's house, and I had not left since. So here I am, COVID, I think I'm now six weeks in. Um, my story is that, you know, all of you are now experiencing social isolation with me, but my story will continue because even when we get through this, until there are antibodies, until there are enough antibodies that we can actually put into my plasma and it's safe, um, I'm going to be on social isolation for a very long time and probably past the time that most of you can go back into herd immunity. So I am adjusting to my new world. I uh, am a very social person, and um, but I knew that this was coming. And more so than anything else, I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful that I'm safe. I'm grateful that I took the precautions that I did in advance and put myself in a safe place and put myself somewhere where I could access um, a healthcare system that would be available to me, that I was able to go somewhere um, where, you know, I'm in a contained environment, but I can physically walk outside because there's no people and I can go into a backyard versus being in Manhattan and Jersey City that just walking out the front door or just having my nurse come into my home is life threatening. So, and the things that kept me alive and the, the procedures and my appointments are no longer available in New York. So more than anything else where I am today, Eva is grateful. So I will do a million Zoom sessions and I'm learning how to cook and I'm doing all those things. But where you, where you see me today is just grateful. I am COVID free. I was tested. Um, and I'm glad that I took the precautions that I did, but I'm just grateful today. I started early because I knew for me that um, I will not be able to fight this. I don't have antibodies to even fight walking around every day. I'm on every day, every day I have IV antibiotics. I take IV antibiotics every day because I live with a chronic persistent uh, antibiotic resistant infection. So uh, for me, the idea right now to have a disease that we don't have any antibodies for is very, very dangerous for me. I have lung disease and, um, and I'm immunocompromised. So I started that process early. I, um, stopped, I 
stop riding the subways, I believe in the end of February. I started wearing my N95 mask um, everywhere I went. Um, so the minute I got out the front door, I started the process of, I have all these supplies, mind you, not because I was hoarding them, but because people like myself, and this is important to understand too, I need these supplies because I need these supplies on a, on a regular basis because I am immunocompromised. So I used my gloves to get out the front door. I don't touch the elevator buttons. Um, I stopped going into uh, public places. I stopped going out to eat. I limited my, um, my sessions with my patients um, to very, very strict you know, settings. Actually, the day, the last day I saw you was um, the last day I went into my office. Um, I stopped. Um, I stopped going to any sort of like public setting. And the last, um, the last sort of social venture I had was to see some patients. Um, my last of my doctor's appointments, and to say goodbye to my friends because um, Miguel all teared up, and I know I'm not going to see them for a very long time. So I'm sorry. We're all emotional <laughs> in all of this, but. I know that um, the isolation that everybody is now under, I had to start early, it, um, but that this is gonna be a very, very long time for me. So, but I'm grateful, like I'm glad that I saw those things. I'm glad that um, I was able to do that. I was able to mourn the loss of my life before. Um, and then I was able to start the preparation process for what would be the things to come. So I started talking to my doctors, probably obsessively <laughs> each day about what was safe, what was not safe. Um, I started prepping to get my medications. I'm on 30 different medications. Several of them are infusion medications. I need to get my plasma, um, which is a big deal. That's an eight hour infusion, six to eight hour infusion every two weeks. I have to get several different types of infusion medications and um, my, um, I have a lot of irrigation medicines. It's not like I'm just taking pills, but I had to like prep for these things that are not easy. And then to sort of have those conversations that I was having with my physicians um, and my close circle of friends of like, what's safe? And I packed up, I got our house prepped and ready that just in case all the things that are happening now that there's no flour and toilet paper and hand sanitizer that if we were to hunker down for three months, four months, I prepped our apartment. Um, but then I also started the preparation process of what if I can't be here? Because if I can't get medical care, I have like, you know this, I have like, even I talk on a regular basis and I'd be like, oh, I had a problem with my nurse. I'm in the hospital today. I'm having a surgical procedure. This that's is a regular my, day for Jody. Regular day, you know, that's how it goes. But for all the people who don't understand um, what it's like if you're constantly using the medical system, if that medical system was overwhelmed, I knew that I wouldn't be able to get care. And I'm in Cleveland. I grew up close by in Akron. I accessed the Cleveland Clinic for many years on and off um, as part of getting diagnosed. Um, I used to get immunoglobulin here for many years and my dad had uh, cancer and I came back and forth. So it was a system I can hop back in, but also I grew up here and, you know, I want to be able to give me a moment. I want to be able to see my dad. Yeah. 
you know, um, and I wanted to have that opportunity that, um, you know, if I'm going to be on isolation for a long time, um, you know, or, you know, he's immunocompromised too, that we would get a chance to see each other. So, you know, um, so in that process, I started, sorry, I don't know, I was going to get so emotional today. Good. I've been keeping it all together. I've been on, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this, but, you know, I've been on Maslow's hierarchy in crisis mode for a really long time, and I didn't have space to be emotional about any of these things, but I knew everything that was happening, and I understood what was going to happen, and I'm, you know, the last part was that, um, and I'm grateful for this, Dr. Jessica Swarovski, that phone call where she told me how difficult things were at Weill Cornell. Um, and what was really going on from her residents and doctors and that my life would be at risk if I stayed. And she made that call. We called my immunologist and she's, you know, she's from Ohio too. And she's like, you have to go to Ohio. So I called one of my best friends from growing up, um, Rachel and her husband, Scott, who are wonderful. And actually I was thinking about an apartment, you know, I was like, you know, with their housing, you know, I think I need to make sure I can access care. And Rachel's like, are you kidding? She's like, you're coming to my house. She, and actually this is what she said. She said, if we get COVID, we will be fine. You're coming to my house. So, um, and I'm grateful and lucky and also privileged because there are many people out there right now who do not have somewhere to go, who didn't have those options, who didn't have friends who had large remote places in the suburbs that they could hide out and be taken care of. But, you know, I'm glad that I did. And so we came here and um, my boyfriend and I had to quarantine from each other uh, because he had been on a plane and he was at risk to me. So we actually were able to stay in separate bedrooms on, I had my own bedroom and bath. We did not see each other for almost 14 days. He was on the other side of the house, slept upstairs. We would have dinner um, apart were N95 masks, we, we would go for walks. I would see him an hour a day. He would walk on one side of this, uh, this suburban neighborhood where there's nobody for miles. Um, Ohio is really, really beautiful and acres of land and nobody's around and walk down the side. Um, but, you know, I'm COVID free, was able to get tested um, and we did the right thing. And so that's kind of, this has been my process. So. That's my personal process. Um, I started the process, as you know, with my patients early um, to talk to them about this. So I think I sent, I sent an email out. It must've been the first week of March or last week of February to tell my patients, you know, I'm immunocompromised. It's likely that I'm gonna start doing telehealth pretty, you know, fairly shortly. Um, and, um, you know, and we started having those conversations. So, and my patients understood that, you know, they knew that that was gonna happen and I moved fairly quickly into doing that. So starting the first week of March. So that was my personal journey. And then my professional journey um, was to prep my patients. So I had a lot of patients who had chronic health care conditions, but I also had patients who, you know, don't have chronic health care conditions. And I had young single people who I knew, you know, being stuck in an apartment by themselves and what if they got sick? You know, that's not an easy thing to be by yourself in an apartment and on a, and I went through it um, for nine days, but that was just nine days. So, you know, and now, you know, I have several of my patients who are young people, who are young, healthy people in their late 20s, early 30s who had COVID and were alone 
you know, knock on wood, I'm so happy for them. They recovered, but they were alone in their apartments. And that experience of being alone, it, you know, I think is probably one of the more harrowing experiences of this outside of being in the hospital and, you know, facing death. But, you know, to be alone is a very, very different circumstance than to be with other people. So, um, so I started prepping them and started talking to them about what's a backup plan. You know, I had patients who were, you know, I had a few patients who were in college or, um, you know, kind of thinking of options like, you know, and are you at risk to your parents? So a lot of conversations came about, well, wait, you know, I can't go, you know, visit my parents because I might be at risk to them. And, you know, I might have to quarantine or, you know, where would be a safe space to go? So these were the conversations that we were starting to have to help them sort of prepare for this process. I talked to each each and every one of them about my my stock, everything that is now happening now. I'm like, stock your house for two. I was like, stock your house for two months and get all of your prescription drugs, as many as you possibly can. Talk to all of your providers about this and see if they'll override and give you even a 30 days supply. Um, we talked about all the like prepping and planning and everything that has now come into place, you know, through our government. I was talking to my patients in the end of March or beginning of March. And actually some of my patients were, were really funny about it because uh, <laughs> a few of them told me over the last two weeks, they're like, I thought you were being really overzealous, but I trusted your judgment. So I listened to you and they were like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for keeping me safe. Thank you. You were right. Um, and I didn't listen. If I was wrong, I would be the happiest person on the planet. Um, but, and that's great. But because I was right, I was able to help them start the mindset of prepping because this is a process. Um, and I think as the different listeners out there who are different parts of the country are dealing with different types of things. There's a difference between living in a suburban area and an urban area. There's a difference between being in New York or being in New Jersey or Connecticut where it started first, where people in other cities um, hadn't had the spread yet. So they had time to sort of process this or see how it unfolded before it hit home to them. New Yorkers, it happened and, you know, outside of, we didn't think Italy and, you know, and China was gonna come here, but it did. So it's, it's, it's been a journey. That's my long-winded answer, even <laughs> with some tears and some laughter and all of it combined. But I think that's Perfect. the whole poster of the emotions of all of this. So because I'm feeling it too. Sorry, because I'm feeling it too. Yeah, we're we're all dealing with it, and I think that's we're one of the terribly beautiful things about this experience is that we're all human and we're all dealing with a pandemic, and we're yeah. all dealing with the the same human elements in our lives, um, yeah. like being separate from loved ones, being scared, um, being grateful, um, yes. being, um, I mean, immortal. <laughs> yes. All of these things that we all have to deal with, we deal with them in different capacities, uh, but we are all in this together. Yeah. I know, again, I am full of cliches and I will be forever and that's fine. Yes. <laughs> but, we are all we, we are all in this together, and I think that 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 community sense is so significant. It is. So, you know, there I there are so many people out there talking about how to cope, not just um, how to cope from a clinical uh, perspective, but just how 
everyone one-on-one is dealing with this without even thinking about it. Like, sorry, let me reframe. There is the uh, thinking about how we should cope with it and being proactive. And then there's the, how do we just naturally cope with it without thinking? And I've, I've been finding that really interesting asking people what they're proactively doing versus what they just started doing automatically. Um, I have to say that, uh, and I was thinking about my own ways of coping uh, when when thinking about this episode. And I actually, maybe it's just come I'm, I'm a planner, but I feel like a lot of what came naturally to me would be things that I recommend to other people. Yes. Uh, Anyway, that aside. That's uh, right. That's right. But, and tell me, so, so why did it come naturally to you? Well, I do spend a lot of time alone, Mm -hmm. I guess. I think that's one of the, I am married to someone who lives with me, but I have my own business where I don't need to be anywhere and therefore I'm home alone a lot. Uh, Zoom has been my best friend for the last yep. few years. Yep. You know? <laughs> so um, I, I, it's always great when I get to meet someone in person. Like, yes. uh, have I again having my own business? I have to set my own schedule and routine. I think is a, a major coping mechanism uh, that is highly recommended, which we can talk about. Uh, staying healthy. It's just I've always I haven't had a lot of structure to my life for a while now. Yeah, I have to create that structure. And I think one of the biggest issues for people is having to create structure in their lives when they've at least had a job, uh, maybe, or like a place that they went every day, um, responsibilities where structure was created for them. And for better or for worse, I actually haven't had that for a long time. So I already had a lot of practices in place. Actually, the hardest thing, I don't want to say the hardest, one of the things I've had to deal with, which sounds a little crazy, is just having my husband around. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of people I think are dealing with that too. On the flip end, we've got people who are isolating and then we have the other end, this beautiful end where, and depending on the day, but you know, families are now home. I think dogs are the happiest. Of all of <laughs> yeah. Everybody's home all the time, but you know, there's a lot of families who are like, wow, we're having all this family time. I was speaking to one of my best friends today and she's like, my kids were just hanging out and playing and they're adapting and they're together and we have all this time together. And so in our busy lives where we've structured, you know, our work and our Pilates classes and, you know, our volunteer responsibilities and all those things. Now it's like, it, it forces people to slow down and be quiet and be together. And for those of you out there who have families and didn't imagine that you'd be homeschooling your children, (laughs) but in some ways it goes back to those sort of simple things that our lives have not become in in our sort of busy scheduled worlds so i think in that way too there's an adjustment yeah i'm very curious to see how behavior uh changes uh, mm-hmm. after covid like obviously there's been tons of behavioral changes these days but but after this sort of calms down what's going to stick oh yeah well, and i think our lives will forever be changed I think the way that we approach things, I think, you know, and I've thought about this, there's some really good things that are coming out of it. You know, for example, the fact that I can do telehealth, there was all these ridiculous restrictions about, you know, where you could do telehealth. The law was that in New York City, as a licensed clinical social worker, I could only do telehealth. My patients had to physically be in New York. What, 
that doesn't, but I could be anywhere because I'm licensed there, but they had to physically be in New York. Well, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make sense. You know, our worlds don't work that way anymore. And, you know, as of the 13th, the, you know, federal law was passed that loosened up that telehealth for both physical uh, or for physical healthcare doctors to be able to do that, to be able to cross state lines and treat their patients and prescribe medications for them. It allowed doctors to come into New York City, nurses to help. So I think there's some really good things that are going to come out of this. It allows people to work from home and have more time with their families and have more time for themselves. It's um, some of the, and I'm going to say this because I feel really strongly about this, the nonsense stuff that was going on with the insurance companies of them taking advantage of people and you know, anybody who has a chronic health care condition knows what are we doing half of the time is fighting for our health care and fighting for, you know, uh, for provisions that should come to us. You pay for your health care. These are the things that are supposed to come to us. And the insurance companies would make so many loopholes to make it so difficult. And they're easing that up and doing the right thing. We pay for insurance, so let us have it. You know, <laughs> don't people, you know, I mean, don't put people's lives at risk for this nonsense. And, you know, so that's one good thing that's come about, you know, come about the insurance companies have loosened up some of the ridiculous HIPAA laws. Oh my God, around, you know what, a patient needs to give them their meds, give them their medications, don't make them sit and fight back and forth and back and forth. And all, all of that time and effort that waste people's lives, but also put stress on people too. So I think those things are gonna change. I think how we work, how we communicate, what we value, um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, our, our lives and, and for those of you living in New York, you know, and all the New Yorkers, like, you know, there's, we're all going to be forever changed by this. And so I think there's a lot of really wonderful things that are going to come out of this. Um, and some of the things we don't even know yet. So we're, you know, it's, it's really, you know, fascinating. And I know a lot of people are talking about this because really in our, in our lives in the United States, probably the most significant event that ever happened on our, on our turf outside of Pearl Harbor was 9-11. And that affected people in, in New York from a, you know, they were there in a physical sense, but, and people could imagine that in other places, but this is affecting everybody now. There's no, there's no state, there's no county that isn't going to be affected by COVID now. We're all affected by this. And there's never been a time in, in U.S. history, in our living U.S. history, that people's daily lives were so disrupted, that people can't go to work, that the post office isn't working, that you know, you know kids can't go to school. And the only thing that I can think of that would be most relatable would be World War II. And that was in Europe. So this is this is pivotal. It'll it probably is the most pivotal time in, in recent history for Americans. Yeah, I was thinking about, I, I mean, I know about the situation, the relative situation in a lot of countries, obviously not all countries. Uh, I don't think there is any country that is not, uh, the last time I heard the couple of countries that didn't have um, any cases, I don't know if this was a joke, but they said, well, we don't have tests. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and every day, and I heard that Abbott Labs had the fast acting test that came out today. And it's like so rapidly this age of adaptation has 
you know, every day something's new and something's happening and we get more information, but you're right. Everybody around the world is being touched by this. When it comes to uh, being informed versus being overwhelmed, this is something actually I deal with politics in general. I don't know about other people, but for me, uh, being an empath, I have to have a boundary when it comes to the news. Uh, Always finding that balance. And these days it's really hard because breaking news is actually happening all the time. Like legitimate breaking news. Uh, there really is news going on, uh, but I think just letting it consume us is, and that's definitely not a way to cope. No, no. And I think, I think there's bound, you have to set boundaries to it right now. It's like everybody's recalibrating and we're recalibrating each week. The first week was, I think people were adjusting to not going into work or limiting how they worked. Then it was adjusting to kids not going to school and we're not, then it's, we're not going out to dinner and, you know, all of these different things. And then this sort of onslaught of information. And, you know, one of the things that's happening with people is that everybody's been in fight or flight. So our sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive (laughs) and it's not, not only is it on overdrive, it's happening all the time. Each day we're having to recalibrate our everyday structure and 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 things that we do so our brain is used to you know okay i go here i walk out the front door i do this i get in my car i do this this is what a monday looks like and those are the things that keep us sort of at ease and calm that's why a lot of people like structure because the brain likes structure but right now every day the brain is having to recalibrate so i think people have to be cautious about how much intake they have and and how they receive the news and you know and it's a boundary so it may be that you have to set that limited boundary about where you know how much of that you're going to listen to when you're going to listen to it and where you're going to get that information from what are some other boundaries that you see being of significance and in being able to cope right now not just with news but well, I think that I think that as you know, people are sort of figuring out what their days are. I think they they have to figure out what they need for themselves each day. So we're on Zoom, right? Zoom's become the big thing where everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, this is great!" and it's been amazing. And I think I've heard a lot of people really say, "Oh my gosh, this time has been beautiful. I've connected with my college friends, or I've talked with you know my cousins, and all those things." But I think people need to kind of figure out for their own selves what's working for them and what is it? So what do you need to provide each day to give you a little bit of semblance of normalcy? So that might be doing something physical, that might be setting time away for some sort of like productivity, you know, for people who aren't working, but you know, and a lot of people now who aren't working are like, I've got all this time, what do I do, you know? But I don't really feel like learning something when my brain's sort of on fire, well then do a puzzle or do something that you enjoy or listen to music. Um, having something each day that you feel is joyful. Um, and that could be simple. It could be hanging out with your dog. It could be watching, it could be watching, you know, bad reality TV. So what, and, and there's no judgment in that. It's whatever you need to kind of disconnect a little bit. I also think that's important too, is that everybody right now is experiencing so much loss Um, and we'll get to some of the other losses of people, but, um, you know, loss of job, loss of school, loss of my friendship group, loss of my old semblance of my life. 
So you have to bring something back where you disconnect a little bit and laugh and, you know, seek that everyday joy. So I think that's important for people to set that up. And lastly, probably is to not judge yourself for that. There's some people who want to Zoom all day long. That's great. And there's some people who might be reading and want to check out and are fine with that. So do what's good for you. Yeah, judgment is hardcore right now. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's rampant in our daily lives, COVID-19 aside. Uh, but I feel right now it's very much in everyone's faces because we are all on at least one kind of leveled playing field. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, one thing I've seen pretty frequently now is I'm going to take this time to. You might cut this out. My weave just came out of my hair. It's falling out. I'm like, I'm going to need to get a wig. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, while I was sitting there, that's the one thing I'm thinking about. I'm like, oh my God, what do I do about my hair and my extensions? Sorry. You know what? Uh, you have PI, we have chronic illnesses, shit happens. <laughs> we all have our thing. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Love beautiful it. Hair. Sorry yeah. for those. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I had to laugh. See, there's some humor. Like you got to find ways to laugh. Oh, I, I have some humor. In I it. love laughing at myself. I mean, I just think it's a way to go in general, especially when you have a chronic illness. Yes, you um, do. That's yep. why spoonie humor is amazing. Yes. I'm like, this is gonna be great. I'm like, I'll just do my hair. I'm like, tomorrow I'll have like a side hair hairdo, side part. <laughs> All good. My dog might be eating the rest of my hair. Oh God. He is a cute dog, though. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Uh, la, la, la. I mean, we were touching on loss. If we went, oh, no, well, we laughter, loss, very different subjects. Um, but one other thing I will say about laughter is, other than making fun of ourselves and the ridiculousness, like, oh, toilet paper memes, uh, quarantinis. Uh, yeah. What else we got? I mean, there's so many... There are really just so many things to make fun of these days when it comes to this really sensitive and devastating topic a lot of the time, but... What, what hair color are we going to look like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, something that I, I think is hilarious is that people are already referring to babies that are conceived during this time as coronials. Coronials. <laughs> well, that gives you a break as a millennial. Wait, you're not even a millennial, are you? No, I am a millennial. I'm like... Or, from everyone has a different idea of exactly what that time period was. I personally feel it's uh, from 1980 to 2000. Um, I was born in 1990, so I'm yep. smack dab in the middle. Gen Xer. <laughs> speaking of speaking of which, um, so I've you know when it comes to my experience, I've had a lot of uh, deeply upsetting experiences as well um, with family members. Uh, and then there's also those surface experiences that surface experience, I mean, like, uh, if you want to call them first world problems, I don't know if that's the right way to think, right thing to first, say here, first, but- first, first Corona problems. First Corona problems. Um, so my 30th birthday is in a couple of weeks and I'm a big birthday person. Uh-huh. I, I think, I know some people are like, I don't want to know anyone to know it's my birthday and they're just- yeah not into it. I personally find it to be that one day a year where you're just allowed to celebrate yourself and yes. used to celebrate with people. I'm all about it. And I had a big birthday plan with like my closest friends. We were going to do a nineties themed party. Oh, um, I love 
And you know, that's not going to happen now. So I'm sad about it, but it's not like I have to cancel my wedding. I know a bunch of people are canceling their weddings. That's right. Awful. Well, a lot of people who've had birthdays, I've said they need to do a Corona redo birthday and they should pick a date. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I'm all down for doing a half birthday. Yeah, pick a date. I've always wanted to have a summer birthday. Just do a summer birthday. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. It'll be, and I think my husband's working that day. So I'll just be, you know, alone in my house. 30. Ooh. <laughs> you have to do a little celebration. Yeah. I'll make myself a cake or something. I'm good at celebrating on my own. I used to, um, I used to do like Valentine things for myself, even if I had a boyfriend. Yeah. It's, good. Like, it's a love myself day. Celebrating yourself. Yeah. But that's a, uh, you know, one of my ways of coping actually just in general is giving myself love even, even actually even more so in times where I'm not loving myself yeah. so much. And it, right. And I think people need to be kind to themselves. And I think people also need to recognize that, you know, we are in this sort of slew of emotions and, you know, there's moments where people are having to sort of power through and kind of put, you know, put a good face forward and be in survival mode. And then there's times where you have to let it out, just like I just did today. And there is going to be a roller coaster of emotions and, and that that's okay. Yeah, that's for sure. Everyone okay. let yourself let yourself feel whatever you want to feel right now because it's a lot and there might be days where you say you know what I can't think about this I need my life to be as normal as possible and I'm going to stick to some structure and some routines and not listen to the news and there's going to be days where you take it in and and you hear something or you listen to the gravity of something that someone is experiencing and you feel it and that people need to, I think people need to give themselves the permission to cope however they will, however they want to. Yeah, that's, that's so well said. Permission to cope the way they need to cope. Yes. And that might change. It might change on an hourly basis. Yeah. <laughs> when I have a meltdown, have a meltdown. Have a good, ugly cry. Have a meltdown. <laughs> and then, or, you know, you, you're laughing and going out for a run or you're talking to a friend or you're being silly and watching binge watching tv whatever it is that you need to do there's no expectations because there's no book on this everybody comes in with their own set of emotions their own set of coping skills their own set of experiences and this is trauma we're all going through trauma together but we experience it differently depending on your set of circumstances so you know be kind to yourself and as you say, be kind, be gentle, be a badass, do all those things, you know, recognize that, you know, just because you respond in one way doesn't mean that someone else will be responding in a different way. And each of us are kind of bouncing off each other and we're feeling all of those emotions too. And so be, be aware of that too. I, you know, I had a day Thursday where, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm separated from New York right now, but I'm listening to my patients and I see them and I actually see them. You know, before I would do telehealth sessions with my patients, maybe four to five per week, but, you know, on average, anywhere from two to five. Now it's everybody is. Um, and I'm seeing them in intimate settings. I'm seeing them in their apartment and I'm seeing them, you know, as they're kind of going through that, which is very different than the office space. And it becomes a lot more personal and they're seeing me and 
the room that I'm allowed to use right now, which is a bedroom. I would never see my patients in a bedroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't that, do that, yeah. <laughs> right? This would go against every therapeutic law known to man. Um, we're supposed to have a blank slate and a clean office. But, you know, I've also seen, you know, Thursday, watching my patients who were, you know, really starting to feel the loss, experience the loss, you know, people that have passed away, seeing horrific things, hearing the sirens, you know, showing me out the window, um, like those things were heavy. And, you know, you can, you know, and I took, took that with me on Thursday because I could feel that, you know, that experience. And we all are feeling each other's experiences, even if it's across in different countries, even if it's or different countries and different parts of the states that are experiencing it in different ways. Taking, so as, uh, look, we're, this is heavy in one way or another for everybody. Yes. Uh, for myself, as again, I, I said, I'm an empath. And for those of you who don't know, in short, an empath means that you tend to take on the emotions of others. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like there, there's actually a character in a, probably shouldn't be alluding to this, but there's a, <laughs> a galaxy movie. Wow, I can't believe it. Galaxy War. You know, it doesn't matter. There's like an alien who does it, who literally takes on people's emotions. Maybe I'll figure out what that is again. Anyway, um, so I've done my best to actually separate myself emotionally more than more so than usually usual. Yeah. And this past week, I lost two family members in two days. And I really like fluctuated back and forth because I couldn't, I couldn't let myself not feel it. It, hit, it literally hit yeah. home. And, you know, even when talking about it, it's weird. I, I still have to I have to put up a wall because this is, I actually feel like I have to be strong for other people around me oh, right. because it's the reality of the situation. Death is a reality in our world always. Yes. That's but right. it's been more so now because it's, um, people aren't, I almost feel like, how do I put this? It feels like a war, right? It feels like people are being killed at war rather than from old age or from, Correct. or illness, even though this is illness, it just, it feels like war. Because it is. Yeah. Because the, the context of, for all of us, right? I mean, part of being human is you're going to die at some point, right? And, you know, but we've had the luxury um, of living over the last 75 years during the vaccine age and during the antibiotic age and you know to all of that and you know even with the anti-vaxxers out there didn't understand the luxury that we had to be able to choose you know for a lot of the different diseases that have existed out there um people have lived and survived mine included i wouldn't i mean people did not survive pi until recently uh, disease of chronic persistent infections you don't have any antibodies <laughs> you're gone that's it which is why I'm freaked out by this pandemic. Um, but the thing, is, the, the, the reason it feels like war is that it's happening to everybody and it's indiscriminate and there's nothing we can do. And I, and I think that that's the part that feels, you know, 
similar to war. And a lot of people are describing that way. And I have described it that way to people. Um, I've said, you know, channel your inner and Frank. You think about, okay, I'm losing all these things around me and it's destructive and it's scary and it's awful. And how do I find some joy in this, this space? But the virus is like war because we haven't been in a situation where we had sort of a mass deaths like this that we can't help and we can't control. And we haven't had a way, to, we don't have all of the tools to fight it. And that's why it's similar to war. And when people die, we're not dying all at the same time. So that's the difference. It's, you know, someone dies at, at different points. You may live to old age. You may have a disease. You may be in a car accident. People die for different reasons that are just a part of inherent life. But to have people die in this way, um, I think is, it's cruel. And I think also too, people are frightened. It, it's scary and frightening because, yeah. and that, that's the difference. There's, the, there's an element of fear that, and chaos that's coming along with it that happens with war. That really is spot on. And the other day, one of, one of the past days this week when I was letting myself fully, fully feel it, I did have one of those uh, ugly cry sessions um, in front of a mirror. It's always in front of a mirror. Somehow you're looking at yourself and it just happens. Uh, and I remember that unlike crying for other losses in my life, this one had an element of fear. Absolutely. I was feeling fear. It was becoming, it's like, wow, this is this is happening to my life, to everyone's life around me. Um, also, as my cousin said, uh, you never think it's going to be your family. Mm -hmm. You hear about other people's, you don't think it's going to be yours. Um, well, which is silly, but, but when it actually happens, it, it's a little surreal. Um, yeah. And, our, and, and Eva, I'm so sorry for the losses that you're, feel, that you're experiencing. And I'm sorry, you know, that, for all of the people out there, because I think that that's the beginning of this week, is now people know people. And it's one thing that we sort of, the information or knowledge we're getting, oh, it's elderly and, and you know people with particular chronic health care conditions, and it allowed us to put things in a box, I think, and it allowed us to feel a little bit more mortal than we thought. And that's not how the virus works. Viruses don't work that way. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> it made no sense to me when we received that limited information from China. But uh, viruses, you know, as it unfolds, you know, and now we know it's indiscriminate. And so, for for everybody out there, I think for all of that is is that, you know, that's the part that that we can feel. I actually would really like to go back to. Uh, the word trauma, you mm -hmm. used that uh, earlier. Uh, I've been reading a lot of articles and um, listening to different podcasts and people talk about the word um, or mention grief a lot of the time. Uh, and I know we spoke briefly about the notion that it isn't actually grief, but rather trauma is a more, um, I don't know, uh, it's a better aligned term for this. There's, there's a component that's grief, but this is a trauma. So grief is a part of the trauma. 
but the overarching experience that we're having is, is trauma because with grief, there's a significant event and there's a process and there's an endpoint, right? So it's a loss and grief is a loss of a person. It's a loss of a job. It's a loss of experience. And it's a, you know, it's a concrete significant thing that happens and you let go of that. But trauma is very, very different. Um, trauma is an experience that we have that, you know, an outside life experience. And it could be, you know, it could be a war. It could be a, you know, an abuse. It could be a rape. It, you know, it, it significant life experience and exposure that changes your life and changes your everyday world. And, you know, what we do know, and there's been tons of research about trauma, and that's where you and I talked a little bit about this, is that's why everybody's sort of recalibrating right now is trauma changes the way that your nervous system works. And it changes the way that your brain responds because trauma also too, unlike grief, grief, there's an ending point. Right now, there's no ending point. We don't know what's happening next. We're, we're in it. And we don't know what this looks like. And that's a very, very different experience than grief because grief gives you a sense of control. And don't get me wrong. People are experiencing grief in the trauma, but, what we, but the overarching thing is trauma. And there are some people where their sympathetic nervous system will shut off and they're calm and checked out and... You know, that's their nervous system goes into that and into a sort of, you know, we have fight or flight and that's sort of the immobilization. And there's some people who their sympathetic nervous system will go into fight and they are anxious and on edge and feeling all of these things. And we're in it. This is, tr this is traumatic. And that's why when you were describing the war part about this, because this is traumatic, this isn't, you know... If we get sick, right, let's say, you know, I'm somebody who deals with chronic persistent infection. I know that I'm going to die of a antibiotic complications of an antibiotic resistant infection. I've survived life-threatening infections. I've accepted that. I'm okay with that. But my assumption with what that would look like means that there are antibiotics out. They may not work for me, but I can get them at the pharmacy. I know that if I get sick, then I'm in a hospital and there's going to be a doctor there and my close friends and family can be there. And all of the things that we sort of look at in life, don't, that's not the process anymore. And that's why it's scary. That's why it's frightening. All of those everyday sort of institutions around how this works are breaking down. And so that's why this is traumatic for all of us. And we're, we're experiencing it at different points. Yeah, and we really don't know, not only when it's, when, first of all, how what would one define ending, you know, here? Yeah. Because in some respects, it's never going to end. That's right. right. Uh, and and that, that's the unknown. Yeah. And, and people, when people think of PTSD, right? So someone, you know, that's a, that's a very, you know, relatable trauma experience. You, you experienced, you know, something that was significant, that was life changing, that changed your brain, changed the way you looked at the world, changed, changed your, your body's response to feeling safe and comfortable. That's, that's why PTSD exists is that somebody could be 
you know, that trauma still lives with you. And so they might have returned from the war, but they're, you know, they're in their kitchen and something reminds them of that. And there's a moment that they feel those things. And that's, that's what trauma does. Is, is there a way to, if this doesn't come out wrong, prevent trauma? Sort of, you know, like preventative medicine, we think of preventative medicine for our bodies. Is there a, what would you consider to be preventative medicine in, in well, your PTSD? Yeah, and, well, in part of my, yeah, and, and that's actually part of the work I do as a cognitive behavioral therapist, is I help my patients to kind of retrain their brain, because I have a lot of patients where a lot of their mental health disorders, they actually experience trauma. It's it's funny, a couple of my patients, and we've talked about this, um, who have OCD, they experience, their brain experiences fight or flight. Uh, because of their cortisol levels all the time. So they're used to feeling panic. They're used to being fearful that something's going to happen and anticipate this sort of bodily response. And a lot of them are like, I'm good. <laughs> Everybody are like, I'm great. I'm doing great. Because they're used to feeling some of those emotions where some of us who've never been through something that was traumatic or don't have some of those mental health conditions that would mimic some of those brain responses, this is new. But yes, there are. I think the first part, the first step in it is the acknowledgement. Okay, this is traumatic. I'm in fight or flight. And then the second part is helping yourself to to work through that. And that may be that, you know, you sort of find those ways to cope. It may be shutting out. It may be providing structure. It may be talking to a friend about that. You know, all of the coping strategies that we sort of talked about earlier to calm your brain down. there's a lot of strategies out there that you can use to retrain your brain. Um, one of them would be, you know, mindfulness can be really helpful. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's a lot of um, educational materials that are out there. I use them with my patients to help stop the spiral. So, for example, you know, the negative thought spiral may, you know, come up, you know, where someone may experience this. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to have a job again. Or oh my gosh, I'm going to die of, you know, Corona or, you know, all these sort of very fearful things that people are thinking about. And it's learning how to retrain your brain to talk it down and counter those irrational thoughts and those fear thoughts so that you can calm your brain. Um, And there are a lot of things that people can do. So first is acknowledgement. Second part is learning how the cognitive skills to talk it down. And then the third part is the distraction. So if you're in fight or flight, the last thing you want to do is start perseverating and analyzing. You want to shut your brain down. So it might be that you need to get physical activity. You might need to go for a walk. You may need to exit you know, the room if somebody is listening to the news and it's too overwhelming for you. You may need distraction. So there are a lot of things that we can do right now to get your brain to calm down. It's the same way I always describe this to my patients that what happens with trauma, it's similar to music. You know, when you hear a song, it takes you back to a moment because mm-hmm. your brain your brain conceptualizes that moment and that music and, and it's relatable. And so you hear a song and you think about eighth grade. That's your traumatic experience and your former traumatic experiences that you may have experienced. And now all might, your, your emotional response to how you respond to difficult things usually is similar. So all of those emotions might be coming back up and it's sort of helping yourself to learn how to get that to calm down in that moment. 
So that's my long abridged word of trying to explain what I do for therapy <laughs> and all of my sessions in like 10 minutes, but yes, there are ways to do that. Um, and for viewers at home, I would recommend, there's a lot of really good um, books out there around and, and psychological information around how to, you know, stop that rabbit hole spiral. So. Actually, uh, would you be open to sharing some? Sure. Uh, well, I'd love some of your own. I think it's always good yeah. when we share some of ours, but also even if an unlabeled patient, uh, something maybe they've done. Uh, just some examples For, to cope yeah um and it's retraining of the brain like i'm thinking naturally about myself and, and other people i know who have so i have my patients write out i call it um coping cards so they have the triggering event so they write out because writing actually puts your brain in a different space because what you want to do is get out of the space that you're in so to write down that trigger, that irrational thought. So the irrational thought might be, I'm going to lose my job, right? Right now. So then to counter it with some other thoughts. I'm not the only one who's going to lose their job. Um, I haven't lost my job yet. If I do lose my job, there is some backup right now that I may be able to apply for unemployment. Hopefully this won't go on forever. You know, listing those other things to help calm your brain. So I have them write, like five or six counter statements to that. Then I have them list underneath that um, five things that they can do to, to distract them and turn their brain off. Because the last thing that you wanna do is allow yourself to keep spiraling because it makes it worse. Um, so they'll write down, you know, and these are COVID days, so it might be, you know, and they might not be able to. So take a walk. If you can't go outside, do an exercise class inside, do a cooking class, um, do, you know, read something watch, you know, watch a movie, whatever those things are that can shut your brain down. And that way, if you write this out, when you're in the moment, sometimes when we're in the moment, it's hard to go to, to do those things. Cause you're just, you're spiraling. You're not thinking about it, but if it's already there and you have it in your phone and it's written out, then you can access that in the moment. And if you prep ahead of time too, it also kind of triggers your brain to remember, okay, wait a second, I can go to this. I have a set of tools that I can use in this moment to help me to calm down. Yeah, basically having these practices in place um, for emergency, they're emergency practices in a way. Yes. Uh, and I like the balance here of you're not ignoring your issues and you're also not harping on your issues and thinking about them too much. It's the acknowledgement the digesting of them and then recognizing that thinking about it past that point isn't going to help. Yeah. And it, and you know, what's ironic is, um, and I always tell this to my patients is that, you know, mental health has come a long way and there's a lot of evidence-based research and science. And actually there's a lot of um, science and, and research around trauma now. And it used, we used to think sort of, if you looked from a psychoanalytic perspective, which that means Freudian for people who don't understand what that means, that if, something was traumatic that we should talk about it. And if we talk about it and get out that catharsis, then we're gonna feel better. But that's actually not the case in trauma. If you talk about and you stir up all of those feelings and you're not in that space and you re-traumatize yourself, that actually makes it worse. So what you actually wanna do is calm yourself down, calm your brain down, do something that's physical, do something that's active, talk yourself down. 
but perseverating over it in the moment makes it worse. And that's, that's not a good thing to do. I definitely learned that the hard way because I was very much in uh, the mindset of one must talk about their issues because then you'll be able to like, it'll leave your brain if you talk about it or you write about it. And while that's important, like the, I think initially, and I definitely still do that. I noticed that the more I talked about my issues, the more real they became. And it was that re-traumatization. It's, it's so on point. (laughs) And there's a difference between processing an interpersonal relationship or a decision or something that you're doing. Yes, of course we need to process all of that. I wouldn't have a job (laughs) if we didn't do that. That's what I do. But to reckon, there's a very, there's a difference. So the difference is right now is that processing irrational thoughts out of fear and phobias because we're experiencing this trauma and spiraling into the fear thoughts. That's very different than having a discussion about making decisions about how to handle things or how to cope with things. That's that's different. And that differentiation people often confuse. Yeah. It's uh this is why everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> that's my and opinion. I, Probably your opinion too, but that's my yeah. opinion. I don't care. Uh, but also, yeah. yeah. And also like, you know, people should access mental health right now. That's one wonderful thing. Yeah. That's another wonderful thing that's happening too. And is that they are, you know, that there's a lot of mental health provisions that are be, that are out there right now that are, there's a lot of therapists who are volunteering and there's other options for people to get in touch with somebody and to talk to somebody and to be able to connect. And also they've now allowed the insurance companies, hopefully will continue to do this, that people can also stay with their providers if they aren't in the same state right now and they can do telehealth without feeling like your therapist is going to get sued. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that. I cannot tell you how thankful I am for this shift. I mean, unfortunately, it's coming out of necessity right now, but the fact that more people will have access to care is a beautiful uh, yes. shift in the system due to this awful event. Yes. And there's going to be for us as mental health providers, I mean, you know, along with the physical part, the mental health component of this is going to be significant, obviously. Yeah. Is there, are there any last uh, bits of parting advice? I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. I, could, I know, I'm like, you know, we could, could go we could for <laughs> what? You know, I, I think, for, you know, I think the biggest thing right now is, is that we have to, each of us have to take each day by day and week by week because everything is changing on a dime. And I think, um, I think one of the things we might have, kind of touch base on outside of this is, you know, is people are feeling anxiety about, wait, I don't know what's next, you know? And so if I don't plan at all, then that feels scary and anxiety provoking. Or if I don't, if I plan too much and then I'm disappointed and these things don't happen. And so it's kind of like, give yourself a barometer, give yourself like a, okay, these things could happen in the next couple months. But for the rest of everything else, it's like every day, just take it day by day. That's it. That's all we can do right now. Everything keeps changing um, on a dime. So be kind to yourself. Allow yourself to adjust. We're all in this together. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. And we're going to get through this together. Thank you so much, Jody. Uh, thanks, Eva. Stay safe. I'll talk to you soon.
Thanks for listening to another episode of my podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. One, hit our subscribe button if you haven't already. Two, tap those stars to give us a rating or even better, a review. And three, share this episode with a loved one. Now, as promised, I'm happy to share with you my personal coping tactics that have helped me emotionally, mentally, and physically over the last six weeks of crisis and 18 days of quarantine. First, I'd like to note that my methods of coping all revolve around being in control where I can. And I do recommend that for everyone. Okay, so my number one coping strategy is routine. I think this is also something important for everyone that creating a routine, especially if it has to be a new one based on our new normal, uh, is of prime importance. And for me, it's the beginning of my day that's the most important. First, that involves, after getting out of bed, uh, intentional movement. And intentional movement for me means stretching, a little workout, yoga, whatever for 10 minutes. That is me purposely moving and being in touch with my body. I then go sit in my special armchair in my office and calmly enjoy my special coffee. I uh, have ripple milk, which is a um, pea-based milk. Pea is in the vegetable peas, uh, very high in protein. And uh, the coffee I use is actually called uh, Four Sigmatic. That's the company name. I'm not promoting them. I've just actually been drinking Four Sigmatic coffee for like three years. Um, I will put that link in the show notes. It's brilliant, really good for fibro fog or just fog and um, energy in a more natural way that has half the caffeine. And then third, I review my quote unquote schedule for the day, including tasks for my company, Wellacopia, this podcast, chores, et cetera. Okay, aside from routine, here are some other things that I do. I avoid cabin fever by uh, taking walks every single day, even if it's raining. And I live in Rochester, New York, where the weather has not always been great, but the walk is important for me. And I also attend social events on Zoom. And that could be like happy hour with my neighbors, uh, whatever, whatever I would usually do being out, there are ways to do that through video chat with friends and family. Uh, sometimes I put on makeup and get dressed in something that makes me feel pretty, even if I'm not seeing anyone. I have moments where I get in touch with reality to an extent. Um, as I say, I am an empath and I want to be well-informed, but I do need to create boundaries. So I read the news, um, at least a news summary every day. I talk to my friends about how they're feeling. I talk to my husband about I'm, how I'm feeling. I make sure to not avoid the negative things that are going on. I, um, ah, meditation or deep breathing. Just any time where I take some breaths and just am <laughs> in one spot for a few minutes each day, uh, bringing your body and your mind into a sense of calm is really important, especially for me. Uh, given that I have a stress-related illness. And it doesn't have to be real meditation. Just, just be for a little bit. I also write, not professionally, <laughs> definitely not professionally. I have a private online diary. I actually have for like 15 years. Um, and I use livejournal.com, uh, set to private. 
And there are lots of different ways to do that, but I've just been using live journal since the beginning of time. Uh, I play games through video chat with friends. Uh, I use this app called House Party. I will also put the link there, but you could even just video chat and play cards. I stay fit in general, and this has been really important for my physical and my mental health. Again, it could be like a 10 minute exercise or it could be half an hour exercise or just a really long walk, um, but it's important for my physical health with fibro and hypermobility syndrome in general, but particularly now when I'm not outside as much, yeah, like it's really imperative. A few days without working out and I see a big difference. I am cooking a lot more. And I guess I always cook, but I'm having more fun with cooking. I would, I would definitely say that's a coping mechanism. And last week I cooked a vegan gluten-free lasagna and it was freaking fantastic. I will put up the, uh, the recipe or, I, or if any of you wanna email me, I'll, I'm happy to give you the recipe. My husband. He is definitely my number one coping strategy. I'm sure I'd be able to do this without him, but it's hard to imagine that. I, I mean, he's an incredible man in general, but he's been a really great support for me during this time and vice versa. I do wanna note that you don't have to live with someone to get a daily dose of love. Text or video chat with your friends, your parents, your siblings, cousins you haven't spoken to in months, your neighbor who you can wave to through the window but not actually sit with, Give, getting a daily dose of love, I, I think might be the most important thing actually. Um, watching the TV show Friends, uh, lighthearted TV that I know will make me happy has been a great coping mechanism. Uh, and you know, Friends is just my favorite TV show, <laughs> doesn't get old. Podcasts, so if you're listening to this, you probably listen to other podcasts. Uh, two that I've really enjoyed lately are Practicing Human with Corey Mascara and Happier with Gretchen Rubin. I'll put those links in. Uh, I'm enjoying funny things, like funny things related to this time, like the whole idea of coronials, aka babies that are going to be conceived during this time, uh, toilet paper memes and quarantinis and all the stuff that we're sort of using to make, make light of this situation. I've had Zoom parties, like Zoom, if you guys don't know about it, is a, a method of video chatting like Skype or FaceTime, or whatever. Um, I, got in, I got invited to a Zoom rave. I'll say that again, a Zoom rave by a random Facebook friend. Um, and this consisted of uh, video chatting with, I think there were 246 people at one point and we're all in silent, we're all put on silent while one DJ live is playing music and we're all dancing to it and watching each other. It was awesome. Uh, and lastly, gratitude journaling. And gratitude journaling, or just saying things out loud that you have gratitude for, um, is really important, especially I think the small things. So the big things are important, of course, but taking note of the small things will really light up your life uh, at a time like this, because we have a lot of small things to be grateful for, and we often don't focus on them. I mean, right now, toilet paper, if you have toilet paper, that's definitely something to be grateful for. Uh, I'm really grateful for comfy clothes and my ability to cook, uh, time with my husband. Uh, I'm really grateful for living in Rochester instead of New York City right now, to be totally honest. And uh, for those of you who um, have listened to my other episodes, you may 
get that I'm, I wasn't the biggest fan of moving to Rochester, New York um, when I was forced to a year and a half ago. And the thing I'm particularly grateful for right now um, as a human on this earth uh, and as someone with a chronic illness, despite me being in more pain lately, I am incredibly grateful for my health. My health, my health, my health. I'm so grateful for my health, whatever I do have left. And I hope that all of you are grateful for the health that you have. We all have things to be grateful for. We all have ways in which we can cope during this very trying time in our lives. And if you are still struggling to find what those are for you after this episode, please feel free to reach out to myself, um, to Jody, to Monica. Uh, you can email us at chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com. Um, Jody is uh, Jody, uh, J O D I, at jodytaubtherapy.com. I will put that in the show notes as well. And thank you again for tuning in. Be kind, be gentle, be badass.